This podcast is produced by Whisper and Mutter. Hey, thanks for listening. I am conducting a research project of sorts. I am surveying you, my listeners, to learn more about you. This quick, anonymous survey will help shape the strategy, production, distribution, and sponsorship of the podcast. Can you please visit yizzyresearch.com to take the listener survey? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, on to the show. You're listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. You are listening to the voice of your host, Imani, UX researcher at and founder of the UX research company, Yizzy Research. I help organizations understand their users, and I coach aspiring and practicing UX researchers in their career journeys. Elise, whose pronouns are she, her, hers, is a UX professional. At the time of our conversation, she was working as a UX researcher and designer for the city of New York. In the first portion of our conversation, Elise talks about how she became a UX researcher in government starting at Tufts University, what she does as a UX researcher in New York City government, how government UX research differs from private sector UX research, being trauma-informed as a researcher, and the most powerful way to share insights and research. You're a bit of a unicorn. You're a UX researcher in government. You currently work as a UX researcher for the city of New York. How in the world did you actually find that job? Because it's not common to find researchers in government. That's a great question. And I I will say before I talk about my own background, it is becoming more and more common for there to be UX research jobs in government. So for anyone listening who's excited to be a UX researcher in government, the jobs are out there. Um, but I had a bit of a meandering background. Um, so I got my start leading a research lab at Tufts University, and we did impact evaluations of human rights programs in global clothing factories. So that job was very um, data and research focused. Um, I led our data collections, our data analysis team there, did a lot of data analysis myself, database management, things like that. And I worked there for four years. So lots of data, as I said, (laughs) data research background. Um, And I really liked that, but I wanted to break out of the world of pure data a little bit and wanted to get more into design, user experience research, uh, things like that. So I ended up at grad school. Um, So I went to school at the Harvard Kennedy School, got a master's in public policy and HKS has a pretty healthy uh, student body focused on digital government. Um, There's lots of coursework there. There's a few centers. And so I sort of fell into the world of digital government. So while I was at the Kennedy School, I worked on a collaborative thesis about automated decision systems and algorithmic bias in New York City government specifically. So that's how I got interested in New York City. And then I saw this job uh, almost two years ago now, and that's how I ended up here. What is your typical day like working as a UX researcher in the city? So you mentioned that it's becoming increasingly common for UX researchers to have roles in government. But what is your typical day like? I imagine that every day is different, especially working for New York. Yeah, so you set it up already. There is kind of no such thing as a typical day. It's so varied. Um, The team that I work on in the mayor's office of the chief technology officer we're a pretty small team. So there's only five of us on the digital services team. So that means that we have a ton of different types of engagements, 
both long-term engagements with agencies, sort of short-term engagements. We work internally in our office and we also do partnerships with other New York City government agencies. So that means that there's just me and one other designer on the team. So my work really runs the full gambit of design work um, from planning and running discovery research to creating prototypes and testing prototypes to doing QA on products that we've created. So in a typical week, I might do user interviews and also research synth and maybe work a little bit on a prototype and maybe do some QA testing. I might also do design workshops with agencies or create design artifacts like ecosystem maps. It really it really depends what projects we have going on at the moment. And usually we're working on a few different projects at once, which I really like. I love the variety and the ability to think at various levels from very high level down to very granular, which pixel should get shifted. Yeah, I know. And you also mentioned before that you do research and you do a little bit of design work too, right? Well, you do a lot of design work, actually. And you, I know you had mentioned previously when we've spoken offline that it's hard for you to decouple research from design, right? So about how much of your workload consists of UX research, how much of it is UX design, and how much of it is like that more workshopping, advising, and consulting? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, yeah, I really, I think that design and research have to go hand in hand. I don't think that you can really, well, there's lots of different types of research, I should say. UX research and UX design go hand in hand, and you can't and shouldn't have one without the other because products and services should always be informed by doing research with real people and co-designing with real people. Um, And so I would say my typical day I end up doing a pretty even split of research and design. Maybe I'm going to throw these numbers out there, but 35% research, 35% design, 30% agency workshopping and consulting made up those numbers. So don't hold me to it. When you say like agency consulting, can you talk more about what that means? So um, you work for the city of New York and you work for the, it's a long name, the CTO, the office of a chief technology officer, but you also collaborate with other agencies and that's a a small part of your job as well. So like what other agencies do you work with and what types of workshops do you do with them as a researcher? Yeah. So we, I would say we do many more engagements with other agencies than we do internal work in our office actually. So our work is very collaborative um, and we have tons of different partnerships with different agencies. So for, I'll just give a few examples. Um, We've worked with like the Department for the Aging on um, services and products for older adults. So we've worked with small business services on um, a database for contracting with minority and women-owned businesses in New York City. So we've worked with a ton of different different agency partners and Consulting is not really the right word of it. It's much more collaborative and partnership focused. Uh, And sometimes we do like discovery workshops with agencies or design thinking workshops, or we do trainings on how to do user research, how to do user research synthesis, things like that, uh, which I really love doing. And it's it's so fun to partner with, with agencies on that kind of thing and to be sharing the gospel of human-centered research. <laughs> 
And how much how much of your workload consists of secondary or desk research? So I had a client a few months ago that was in the nonprofit sector slash government sector, and I was so surprised by how much desk research I had to do just to actually learn more about what was going on, right? In the private sector, we don't really have a lot of secondary research to go off of or to, to do, right? So I'm just curious, how much of your research workload consists of secondary research? I would say it's not a ton, and I I try to keep it at a minimum. Obviously, there's an important baseline level of knowledge that you should have when you're working with an agency partner. And because we work with so many different agency partners on so many issue areas, it is really important to do desk research and understand the basics for the sort of populations that different agencies serve. But I really see the heart of my research as speaking with real people, and that's always the goal. And so the kind of secondary research I do is just to inform that and have a perspective and, and a base of knowledge to to be able to to do the primary research. Right. I also think with government, there's so much published and written. There are so many reports and white papers and books that are published about different public interests topics, right? Like it would be hard to do research on something without researching it ahead of time because there's so much that exists. Again, with like the private sector, it's not really like that, especially if you're doing research that's so specific to your company's product, right? In the case of working with the city or working for the city, what types of projects or products or research projects are you working on? Like what types of research questions do you try to answer as a UX researcher for the city? That is a great question. And I do think it is it is very different from the private sector because when you are a UX researcher in government, your users are everyone, every New Yorker. <laughs> and that is obviously a ton of people and people from a ton of different backgrounds and demographics who have lots of different needs. And so sometimes one of the biggest challenges can be narrowing down your work to a specific population. Um, because obviously different agencies work with different populations and serve different people's needs. And so it, it's important to keep in mind that your users are everyone fundamentally, but also you're often designing for specific individuals or groups of individuals. And often you're designing services and products for people who come from marginalized backgrounds many of whom have had negative experiences with governments um, and not been able to get the services they need or have their needs met. And so I really try to take a do no harm approach um, and be really aware and cognizant and critically engaged with my own privileges, my own positionality. I really try to use a trauma-informed lens in all of my research, uh, especially with, with populations where um, they have experienced a lot of trauma and a lot of trauma related to government in particular. We have to follow up on a few points. So one, what is a trauma-informed lens? So obviously when you're working with, so a lot of people always say that we do research and design for everyone, right? But not at the scale that it is in New York, right? And also there are so many different people, like you said, in New York, and you said many of whom have experienced trauma in relation to the government, right? So what is a trauma-informed lens and how is that something that we can use beyond government? Can you talk more about that? I think that having an understanding of trauma and using it in trauma-informed lens is really important 
honestly, for any UX researchers, because when you're doing UX research, you often have very intimate conversations with people, especially when you're doing discovery research, when you're learning about a person, when they're sharing their lived experience and expertise with you. Sometimes there is trauma in that history, uh, and it can be really hard for people to talk about. It can be re-traumatizing for people to talk about. So it's really important to be cognizant of the types of questions you're asking, uh, the way that you are validating people and their experiences. Uh, It can be really important to know how to guide a conversation so that you're not asking questions that are re-traumatizing. Um, while also sort of getting the information you need. So there are, there are lots of tips and tricks for, for using a trauma-informed lens when you're doing research, but it's very fundamentally about understanding that people have trauma and um, being validating and respectful of that and not re-triggering uh, those experiences. Yeah, and what research methods do you employ most often and how do you how do you employ those methods with the trauma lens? Yeah, so there is no special sauce for research methods in government. We we use all the same research methods that other UX designers use. So we do open-ended discovery interviews. We do evaluative interviews where we might show a prototype and give a task, or we might do a cognitive walkthrough. I mentioned already, we do lots of design thinking workshops. So tons of whiteboarding sessions, like all good designers, we burn through many stacks of virtual post-it notes. Um, But I think the question about bringing a trauma-informed lens to that is is really important. And to, to be very clear, I, I don't have any formal training in trauma-informed UX research. I, I think that exists, but I don't think it's super common. I used to volunteer as a crisis counselor on a hotline in Boston. And so I had training as a crisis counselor, which is obviously very trauma-informed. And so I have done my best to take my learnings from that experience and and those five years working on the hotline and bring them to UX research because there are shockingly a lot of similarities, I think, between that kind of social work and engagement with people and UX research, um, especially public interest UX research. So for me, it is really about the things that I mentioned before, which is being really careful about the questions that I'm asking and the information that I'm asking for from people. I try not to ask questions where I don't need the answers to them if I think that uh, it might be traumatic for people. And if I do ask questions that might bring up traumatic histories to be really validating and really give, make sure that people are giving full consent to the interviews that they're going into, making sure people know that they can stop at any point. And there are a lot of sort of like, not tricks, but there are some methods to use um, with a trauma-informed lens. Like, for example, it can be really traumatic for people to give a ton of details about an experience that has happened. So you can guide the conversation to learn about what happened and sort of steer it away from details that might be really traumatic or triggering for people. Um, But yeah, fundamentally, it's about getting full consent, Uh, It's about being validating and it's about 
understanding that those experiences are real um, and and true and honoring that. Yeah, I always joke around. I actually mentioned this in an earlier um, in season one of this podcast in one of the earlier episodes that I some many times growing up, I always felt like I was a therapist. And at some point I wanted to be a psychiatrist, right? Because people would just come to me with things, right? <laughs> and then it's just funny that I became a UX researcher. And I always think to myself, I think I have on my LinkedIn profile that I'm an armchair psychologist or something to that effect, because it does feel like we are, right? Like we have to be so trauma informed. We have to be validating, but we still have to go into these research projects to get our questions answered. So we still have to be the detectives, right? We have to be the empathizers. And it's kind of hard to do all of that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, it's so important to to be empathetic as a UX researcher. And I think that, well, I don't know, there's no such thing as UX research school, right? People come to it from so many different backgrounds. But I do think it is such an important thing for people to understand and practice is real empathy in interviews and in research. And once you once you have all of this information from these, let's say, user interviews or usability tests or discovery sessions, how do you actually share the insights from your research efforts, especially in government? I know there's a very particular way of communicating in government. So how do you actually share your insights with people? Such an interesting question. And it's especially interesting for me and the small team that I work on because it's not like I'm a UX researcher and I share my insights with the designer and then the designer goes and runs with them. It's like me and my colleague are the designers. And so we share our insights with each other and then we actually take them and and roll with them. And I really like that, but of course it's also so important to be sharing insights and bringing people along, especially agency partners to be bringing them along with the process and sharing with them what we've learned and why we're doing this research in the first place. So I have found that the most powerful way to share insights from research is through quotes. I think a lot of folks who work in government, obviously not all, um, there's lots of different jobs in government. So maybe I should clarify, oftentimes the agency partners that we work with are not the folks who are necessarily on the ground doing direct engagement with people. Um, They're often the policymakers, the decision makers, they're the ones allocating funding um, and deciding what gets done, but they're not always in a direct sort of client facing role. And so I think that makes the power of quotes even more powerful for people because one, it's really nice to actually hear from the people that you are serving in government and to to know what people are saying and thinking. And it really brings home things that we are researching and surfacing that you can't bring home in any other way. Like I can say over and over, oh, people are struggling to use this particular service, but that doesn't hold a drop to the weight of bringing a direct quote from someone who is like, I cannot use this service because I don't understand it. That's a really powerful thing. Um, And so, yeah, I love quotes and I love bringing people into the research process in that way. If you're enjoying this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give it a five-star rating and a glowing review. Subscribe, follow. Many of you messaged me to tell me how much you like the podcast. 
but it's even better if you share it with your coworkers, mentees, and mentors on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and any other platform I forgot to mention. Spread the love, don't keep me to yourself. <laughs> also, if you are an aspiring or even a current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, interviewing skills, professional branding, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. So something about the quotes, though, um, I know um, confidentiality and preserving people's um, identity and their humility, their integrity, their honor. I don't know what word to use, <laughs> but I know that um, protecting people's identities is really important when you're sharing research, especially in government and healthcare, Right. So how do you actually do that? Right. How do you share insights from Jane Doe without someone saying, oh, that's Jane Doe from Queens. Right. How do you actually do that? Yeah, well, that is a beautiful thing about being in a city like New York, which is it's very hard to identify Jane Doe from Queens because there's 8 million people in the city. <laughs> um, but it is so, so important to protect people's privacy and confidentiality. And I work in the mayor's office of the chief technology officer. So we extra care about privacy and confidentiality um, and privacy in tech. But um to me, it comes down to consent with the participants um, and making sure that the participants are giving informed consent to have their quotes shared if that is um, appropriate. So we we always do an informed consent process before interviews. And as part of that process, we ask if we can share anonymous quotes with agency partners. And we're super clear about what that means, about how it's anonymous, and it'll never be traced back to an individual person. And usually, so we also are very strict about personally identifiable information, PII, where we store that information, when we get phone numbers, when we get names, when we get email addresses to contract people, we're super careful with that information. So often our agency partners don't know the exact people that we're reaching out to. Um, we, and so it, they don't have like a list of people that they can go back and try to match a quote to. Um, and then of course we've gotten permission to share those quotes. I, I thought it was really interesting when you mentioned audio and visual recordings, because I also think that those are super powerful for bringing stakeholders along for the ride and bringing people into the research process. But so that's something that I really shy away from in government because there are very real negative feelings that people can have about being recorded by someone who works in the government. And so I never really want to broach that with folks. And I want to make sure that people are as comfortable as they can possibly be in the interview and feel safe sharing their vulnerable information, their any whatever details about themselves and their lives they're sharing. And going back a little bit in the research process, so I asked you initially, how do you share insights from research projects? But let's take a step back before that when you're doing synthesis, right? How do you anonymize respondents' information and their um, their thoughts and feelings when you're doing synthesis? So I know, for example, in the past, I've used like a code where I'll use a person's first initial um the initials of the state, the state that they live in. So let's say if I were doing it for myself, Imani, I would do I and Y and I use like some random numbers to help anonymize them in the synthesis process. So can you talk more about that? Yeah, we use a similar process of anonymizing 
um, giving them or giving participants a code when we anonymize their information. So for example, we might say that they are P-1-E, participant one, Elise. I don't know if I'm your first participant. I don't think I am. So, <laughs> um, and so we use that process and then whatever sort of documents we have that actually contain people's information or emails or phone numbers are kept totally separate from the synthesis process. So if you look at any of our research notes even, you'll just see that it says p-1-e um, and that it has information. And we're also pretty careful not to, we, we try to take verbatim notes in our interviews, but we're really careful not to take uh, notes about um, specific medical or health information as also a privacy issue. Um, so we take notes and if someone talks about a very specific medical issue they're experiencing, we'll just say participant discussed medical information um, and whatever we need for that particular interviewer we'll save. So we do really do our very best to protect privacy and confidentiality. And obviously, like I said already, consent is the most important part of that is making sure that participants know exactly what information is being recorded about them and what might be shared and in what manner, which is always anonymous and confidential for us. Um, Elise and I initially met through me working as a UX research fellow for the city of New York in the partner in partnership with United States Digital Response. And when I was working as a researcher with Elise and the New York City team, they take verbatim notes, like Elise says. So when people are talking, when participants are talking to you, you're actually typing out what they're saying word for word. And that was tough. Oh, my God. I remember one of the first sessions I did that. Elise and one of her colleagues was there with me. And Elise was like, it was hard to keep up, right? After we like after we were done, <laughs> you were like, it was hard to keep up. I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, those verbatim notes are so tough. I usually... Um, I know usually when I do my sessions, my research sessions, I'm able to record them. I get the consent of the participant. And I can take notes later or transcribe them. But I know, like you said, with the privacy thing with the city, you can't always do that. But those verbatim notes kill me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is a very underrated skill, the ability to take verbatim notes. Obviously, we do not do it perfectly. We're not real stenographers. <laughs> um, but it is it is so, so valuable to be able to go back to your notes and see exactly what a person said, to be able to pull quotes from it. And I think it also, when you're so focused on taking verbatim notes, which, by the way, we always have two people, at least two people on a research session. So one person is facilitating and one person is taking notes. I think it would be impossible to facilitate and take verbatim notes at the same time. <laughs> But it is when you are taking the verbatim notes, you really just get into this zone of typing exactly what the person is saying. And that means that you're not coloring any of the notes with your own feelings or your own opinion. And you're really capturing the exact tone of the interview and really honoring what that participant is saying. So I, I think it's super important. And I, I love the practice of, of taking verbatim notes if you're not able to record. And when you have these notes, so like now I'm moving along different parts of the research process. Let's say once you have the notes, once you're in your synthesis, you're in your synthesis mode, but you're not quite ready to share yet with the public or with your other stakeholders, how do you actually store these quotes? So I know I remember there was a repository that you did use in Airtable. So like, how do you create your repositories? How do you decide what to put in it in terms of like um, insights? Yeah, so we go through our interviews. I try to do this 
right after the interview while it's really fresh in my head. And I'll basically go through it or my colleagues will go through it and we will pull out the quotes from that interview after the fact that felt really powerful or that were just insightful or important. Obviously not everything that is said in an interview is is going to be used. And so it's the first step is kind of sorting through, pulling out the things that we thought were important and then we put them in our repository and we give a little bit of context to it or interpretation. Um, so we'll say, here's the quote, here's the interpretation, and then we give it a few tags so that we can easily search through the repository afterwards. Um, so that's how we structure the storage of our, of our quotes um, from interviews. And then we also do like more what you would think of with synthesis sessions where we write lots of things on post-it notes and put them on whiteboards and move them around and that whole thing that designers love to do. <laughs> yeah. And what you said about adding notes to the repository when the insights and when the findings are still fresh. So let's say if you just spoke with Jane Doe, you want to go put those insights in the repo as soon as possible. I think, I think that's a good point. I know personally, I'm really guilty of not doing that. Like, because I do tend to record my sessions and I also take notes that are not verbatim notes as I, as I, as I facilitate in the session, I always think to myself, okay, well, I can go back and look at these later. And I do, but there's a certain magic that you, that there, there's a certain magic that's there after you do an interview or a usability test or a focus group that you want to capture immediately. So I do appreciate that you said that. And we've been talking a lot about some of the limitations of working as a researcher in government. The main one being that you have to be very careful with how you um, intake and how you store information and also how you talk to your participants because many of them are from vulnerable populations, right? And you talked about the trauma-informed research. What are some other limitations you have when doing UX research in government? Yeah, I wouldn't even categorize those things as limitations, honestly. I think, to me, it's just philosophically right to be so uh, cognizant of, of privacy and confidentiality. And I think that it's it's just, it's not necessarily a limitation, um, basically. I think that we still do really great research while keeping those things in mind. But there are definitely real limitations for being a UX researcher in government and I'm sure you can imagine some right off the top of your head, there's like budgeting constraints, there's staff constraints. I've already talked about how there's only two designers on my team and all of New York City government is 300,000 employees. So there's obviously other UX researchers in other offices in New York City government, but for an organization of the size, there's definitely not the sort of full robust UX research and design team that you might look for. And then there's some of the, the limitations that are, you might not think of right away. So there's obviously lots of bureaucracy. Everyone talks about that. It's very real. It's very ossified. It's very hard to navigate. And then there's also some of the sort of less sexy things to talk about, like procurement, um, which can be a real challenge in government work. Um, and then I think one of the most unexpected things I've learned uh, or lessons that I've taken for being a UX researcher in government is to not let perfect be the enemy of the good. And this goes back a little bit to what I was saying when every, when you work in government, everyone is your user. 
And so if you were going to do perfect user research, you would want to talk to someone from every possible group of people and combination of identities. And obviously that's not possible in a city of the size of New York. And so you have to be pretty strategic about who you do speak with, um, thinking really carefully about what kind of bias um, that might put into the research, um, being really proactive about reaching out to folks who might be harder to reach, but maybe more important to talk to, um, but also not sort of being paralyzed by the need to do super perfect research because that's just not possible. And how has COVID changed the landscape of digital government from your perspective? I know you're a researcher and a designer, so you'll see it from that perspective, but what changes have you noticed as a result of COVID? Yeah, I think the most tactical change that has happened in my work is that all of our user research is remote now. And because we work with so many different populations of people, sometimes we interview people who don't have email addresses or they don't use their email addresses very often. And so we do our user research over the phone. And that is very different from sitting down with a person in real life and being able to see their body language and being able to engage with them in that way. You're just picking up the phone and calling someone up and saying, hey, can I talk to you about this thing? And so there's a whole lot to say about remote user research um, and how to do it well and empathetically. Uh, but that has definitely been, been something that we have been working on and, and learning a lot about over the past year. And then I think more broadly in terms of digital government, the mayor's office of the chief technology officer where I work we have always been very focused on affordable, high-speed internet access, um, and we really see it as a right and a need for all people. And definitely COVID has really brought home to others how very real the digital divide is and how it, it really is fundamentally a justice issue for people to have access to the internet because for the past year, people have been using the internet to do everything <laughs> um, from getting access to medicine and food to speaking with friends and family. Um, so I, I think that that it really brought home the starkness of the digital divide. So in New York City, 18% of people don't have access to home or mobile broadband, which is shocking. And it really just brought home the starkness of the digital divide. And so I think the conversation in digital government has shifted in a positive way coming out of obviously a very traumatic year for a lot of people, but it has shifted in a positive way because people really see how important it is to have access to digital services and just the internet. <laughs> And just pivoting to the next part of this, just talking about your education, you have a Master of Public Policy from Harvard, right? So what impact has your MPP had on you being a UX researcher in government? I think it gives me appreciation and respect for the policy side of things. And it feels 
like a little bit more holistic in terms of, okay, I am practically and functionally a technologist. Like I'm a very hands-on, my work is very hands-on. I'm a designer and I'm a researcher, so I'm not as involved with the policy side of things, but I definitely have a good understanding of it. Um, I actually, when I was getting my master's degree, I had several professors who had actually been practitioners in public interest technology. And I think that was really great to get sort of their practical tips and learnings for how to be a public interest technologist working in government. And would you say that in order to be a successful technologist in government, do you need to have a strong background in policy? Like I know I'm, I'm interested in maybe pursuing digital government as a UX researcher, but I don't really have a background in policy. Do you think someone like me would need it? What do you think about that? I definitely don't think you need a background in policy to be uh, a UX researcher. I think you will be working with so many colleagues who have policy expertise and all of your work will be a team effort. And so you'll be bringing one component of the team, which is those like practical, tangible skills in UX research and design. And then you'll be working with your colleagues who are the experts in policy and maybe they've been there for many years and they understand so well how things work. Um, And so it's, you definitely don't need a background in policy and you should be totally open to learning lots from the people that you end up working with. What's the relationship between policy and UX research? So I know I mentioned earlier, I asked you about secondary research and how much you have to do as a UX researcher in government, right? So what is the relationship between policy and UX research? And I guess also secondary research as well. Yeah, I think that's something that is still being figured out, honestly. Uh, I, I wish that policy and legislation would have a real impact on mandating user research and mandating human-centered design in government services. You know, it shouldn't take a master's degree and five years of experience to sign up for benefits, right? It should be easy. It should be simple. It should be user-friendly. It should be accessible. Um, And the way that that happens is through user research. It's through human-centered design. And so, There isn't necessarily a clear relationship right now, but I absolutely think that they should go hand in hand and that policy should push for user research and should push for human-centered design in government services and products. And lastly, what advice do you have for people aspiring to do UX research in government or aspiring to become a UX researcher in government, whether it's at the municipal level, whether it's at the state level? whether it's at the federal level, what advice do you have? I, my number one piece of advice is to, to be humble. I talked about this already, but it's so important to be aware of your own privileges, of your own biases, your positionality, and to always be critically examining those things in yourself and in your relationships with the, the people that you're working with and interviewing. So really be humble and you're not an expert, right? I think it's your job to be an advocate and a facilitator for users. And people are sharing their lived experience and their lived expertise. And it's so important to be 
It's so important to be humble because people are sharing their lived experience and their expertise with you. And that is a really special and kind of amazing thing. And you just have to be really cognizant of that and grateful for it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take the listener survey on yesyresearch.com. Give this podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And follow Yizzy Research on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll chat soon.